everyone. This is Jude Dahlia, and welcome to Don't Stay in Your Lane. Today, we're talking to Pedro Russell about his path from being a farmer and a bartender in the small town in Massachusetts, all the way to MIT Sloan School of Management and making his way through the education technology business. I've had a lot of fun with this conversation, so please tune in and listen to him explain more. Pedro went from not really being into education to being a fiend in the education technology space, which has been really impressive to see. I would love to hear more about what you kind of started off thinking about jobs and careers, like back in the day when you're a teenager thinking, oh, shoot, I need to make money to where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. Back when I was a teenager and I thinking, oh, I needed to make money. So interesting. I mean, like that's literally was one of the biggest things that I thought about. I was 14 when I had my first job. I was a farmer, started as a farmhand. What kind of farming? So we did a lot of like, I grew up in Massachusetts, right? So it's not like, you know, we had this huge like soybean farm or anything, but like, it was like all, a lot of vegetables. So like my first, I just remember like my dad dropped me off at like 6am and I would pick corn for two hours until the sun came up and we just get big bags of corn and fill them up. And then once you filled up a bag, then you went out, you brought another one. So do you use any of the skills you use for corn picking today? No, (laughs) like, honestly, I think that job really speaks to like why I'm so passionate about career navigation and like occupational identity. Like I didn't know I I grew up poor. I grew up in a low income household and I knew I needed to make money if I wanted a car when I was 16. And I didn't really know how to get a job. So when my friend's mom who worked at the school asked if I wanted a job, I just said yes. Didn't even know what it was. And then I got this job and it paid horribly. It paid seven fifty an hour. I worked 60 hours a week. There was no overtime. And I busted my butt and I hated it. And I would work super hard for a super low paycheck. And I don't know. It was I did it for you know two years and never really felt like I was moving forward. So I think so much of like what happens to people is, you know, if they don't have occupational identity or like even any awareness of what jobs exist, then, you know, the, the, there's a high likelihood you're going to end up in a job that just doesn't pay you well enough or isn't suited to what you want out of the world. Yeah. So after farming, like what was kind of that big aha moment where you're like, oh, okay, like I should move on to something else? I mean, there wasn't an aha moment, I think, for so long. I mean, you know, I'm 30 now. I mean, my first job was I was 14. I did that. And then you look 21. Okay. So how about this? I guess my aha moment, I was a bartender. Mm-hmm. I moved to the city after I graduated high school and the same goal. I just wanted to make money and become financially independent. And so I walked into a restaurant and I just said like, Hey, like I'll work for you. And they're like, what can you do? I was like, I don't know, like whatever. So I started shucking oysters, became an oyster shucker. Then I became a bartender and I did that in total about seven years. I think in those seven years, I got fired from about 13 different jobs, at least. What was the most common reason for firing? Oh, there were so many. I mean, like, sometimes it just didn't like me. Sometimes it just didn't do side work. Sometimes, like, I would just show up late. But, like, there was always a thing where it was, like, after three or four months, someone got sick of me, and I got fired. And... What I didn't realize until much later in my life is just like, I hated that job. I hated my career and what I was doing with myself. And I like had super low self-esteem because of 
just the environment that I was being surrounded by. Like all my friends and I, like, you know, we would drink and party six nights a week. And I never, I made good money. I think my best year bartending, I made almost $100,000. But I never saved a penny of that money. Because it's always going to parties and stuff. When you were bartending, did you feel that like more of that occupation identity you didn't have farming or was it still kind of in this nowhere space? You know, like I thought I loved it at the very beginning. I mean, I became financially independent super quickly. And, you know, when you're young, I was 21 years old and I was making a ton of money and like I thought I loved it. But again, like I didn't even know what else was out there. And it got to a point where, again, I was just miserable and I didn't know what I wanted out of life. And at that point, again, I was back to square one. I was, I felt really stuck. So you're back to square one. Clearly there was like something that unstuck you. What was that thing? I think I hit rock bottom. I think for me, like there was this one period in my life where I, um, like I got fired from a job and you know, that point, like I'd broken up with my girlfriend we were living in the same apartment. So I got kicked out of that apartment. I had no job, no girlfriend, no place to stay and no money in my bank account. And I was like 22 years old. And I think for me, the aha moment was like sitting at the side of the road, maybe an hour after I had gotten fired, realizing that like I had accomplished nothing and I had nothing to my name. And that like, if I didn't do anything with my life, if I, if nothing else happened from that point in my life, that like it would have just been like a huge waste of my time and everyone's time for me to be here. So I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I think that was the first time in my life where I decided to be intentional about trying to live and not just trying to like survive. That's amazing. So at that point, you realized you wanted to find purpose within your jobs and careers rather than just that monetary freedom that comes with jobs. Yeah, I just wanted purpose. Like I had achieved everything I thought I wanted to achieve, but I had set the wrong goals for myself. And so I just like it wasn't necessarily about I ended up finding purpose, a lot of my purpose through my career, but. I wasn't setting out for that. I just wanted something in my life I could hold on to. How did you go to the goal setting after that point? Like, how would you approach goals and think of this is the next thing I want to achieve? I mean, at the very, very beginning, it was just about like movement. It was literally just like, you've never felt this bad in your entire life. So like, instead of just sitting, you know, at your parents' house on their futon, like crying, like what's one little thing you can do that like, can, that you can hold on to and then do that again the next day. Yeah. So like for me, like first step, you know, even though I hated it, I decided to go to try to find another restaurant job. But I looked for one in a more upscale bar with older people and I picked up like weekday shifts. Yeah. And then I made that goal of like, look, I'm not going to have a shift drink. I'm going to go right home and I'm going to like be depressed on my mom's futon. So I did that for two months and then school started. And I enrolled at Bunker Hill Community College and I only took two classes. So I was like, look, man, like you're not doing anything else in your life. Like you might as well just get an A in this class. So like I tried really hard and I got an A in some random marketing class. And then I got like a C in some calculus class, which is like the highest I'd ever gotten 
in math my entire life, <laughs> you know? And it was just like, and then, so those little things. Yeah. Stepwise. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people today forget because there's such an emphasis on being young in an industry and people who start so young and find their purpose that they think they found, but it's not really their purpose. But little people think like, oh, it's like the steps that actually get you the way where you want to go. How would you think now, like if you would talk to yourself back then at each step, how would you motivate your past self to get to those steps? I wouldn't change a single thing about what happened in my life. Okay, amazing. Because like, that's just what I needed to do to learn. I was just super immature and self-centered and cocky. And I needed the reality check of life. And I'm proud of myself for how I handled it. But I don't think I would have been able to accomplish everything if I didn't just get like really beaten down and become humble enough to understand that like, you know, like life is hard, but it's not short. (laughs) So like if there's one thing I could tell myself in the past, it would just be like, take your time. Like just literally just take your time. Like I didn't graduate from college, from undergrad until I was, God, 26, 27, you know? Yeah. And then now I'm going to MIT Sloan and like I barely crack 30. And like I'm like the average age of Sloanies is like 28, right? Yeah. And like there's people in the class that are 32, 33. Yeah. So yeah, MBAs tend to be around 30 and you're definitely around there and going to one of the top MBA programs, MIT Sloan. So coming from your background and getting there is an achievement in itself, let alone like what you're about to go further into. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I'm proud of where I am, but like I say that because it's like, it almost doesn't matter what you do as long as you like are moving towards something. Like, I think that was the biggest thing for me is like, yeah, like I decided to go back to business school and I made that effort because like, I just wanted to, I just really, really wanted to do it. And like, if regardless of what you want to do, like the most beautiful thing that I've ever found in my life is like finally having something I actually want. (laughs) But I didn't get that until I started doing stuff without really knowing what I wanted. I just knew that I didn't want the life that I had at that moment in time. So like your momentum is driven, like your purpose, a lot of it is driven from movement and momentum and getting to this place. Do you think you'll get to a place where that won't be your motivating factor, just being moving forward? So that's that's a great question because I think as I started to move forward and gain momentum, that's where I really started to find purpose and passion. Like I'll kind of explain it, right? So I was at Bunker Hill and I know I'd gotten a few A's. I had a GPA. Yeah. Still really just like no real understanding why. And then there was this internship program that you can sign up for. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I meet the cutoff for this. Like I've never met the cutoff for anything in my life. So like I showed up and applied to the internship at State Street Bank wearing like baby blue and one shorts and like a white tee and like just looking awful. And that was my first internship. And what I realized at that internship is like, one, I like, first off, wasn't my favorite thing to do is like data and entry analysis. But like, what I actually realized is like, damn, I get to sit down and get paid for it all day. I've never in my entire life worked at a job where I got to sit down and make money. Yeah. It was I was a farmer and I did like camp counselor. Then I was like, I was a bartender. So I was like, I didn't realize you could just sit and hang out and make money like that. To me, that was the easiest thing in the world. And then I liked sitting. 
but I didn't like the work I was doing on the computer, but I was like, oh, there has to be something different than just this. Like, yeah. so then I went back to the internship program and then I went to Eaton Vance with their investment council. And then there I discovered like, oh, wow, like you're good at Excel. That's crazy. Like for me, I was just Googling formulas, but like to the team, I was building like portfolio models, asset allocation, you know, like tax optimization strategies, you know, like all this cool stuff. And to me, I was like, oh, I think I could just Google it, figure it out. And I was building stuff. And then I was like, I had mentors. That's another key part of it. It's like, I had a mentor. It's like, you're good at this. You like to do this. I was like, oh, I guess I do like to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything just spirals to there because the more you do, the more you end up learning. And then next thing you know, I'm like really passionate about like finance. So I went to major, I got my degree in finance at Bentley. But then when I was there, I realized, oh, like finance is a smaller part of business. And I really am passionate about business. Yeah. And then business became my passion. And then I did management consulting. And then from there, I was like, wait, I like business, but I actually like education because this sector, I feel like I have an impact through business. So then I went to an ed tech company and a corporate strategy. And I was like, okay, I like this, but actually what I'm really passionate about is starting new businesses in ed tech. So then I went to EdVC. Yeah. And so like, that's kind of how everything kind of just has progressed in my career is just working and finding things that are new and exciting and interesting and then just pursuing those without fear. So that without fear and pursuing like kind of a new job in a different sector, going from finance to ed tech to ed tech VC, what's kind of for you any like hesitation that you've overcome with those transitions that people are impressed by or like you've thought of like, oh, in the beginning, it was so hard to move around, but now I can do anything. Like what was the change point for that? Unfortunately, I've never struggled with that. I can't speak to it, but I think it's because like, I had already failed so badly in my life yeah. that like it was literally not possible for me Feel rejection. to do any worse than I had already done. Yeah. Like literally what's the worst that could happen to me right now is I go back to bartending. Yeah. And like, you know, I'll survive, you know? So I always felt like, oh, if I want to do something else, maybe I won't be good at it. But like, at least it's not sitting on the side of the road, like with no job, no money, no place to stay. Like, and that's really what it comes down to is like, you know, people are so afraid of failing, but like, once you get there, it's, it's not that bad. Like, it's always something you can bounce back from, you know? And I think you need to experience that to truly just be unafraid of it. Yeah, that's experiencing failure. And I think a lot of lessons come from experiencing failure that we kind of shield the next generation from in general. Just, like, staying in your lane. Like, don't even try to venture out of what you're trained to do or what your parents say you're meant to do or your community says you're supposed to be doing. Do you think so, though? Because I feel like nowadays... There's so many entrepreneurs. I mean, maybe this is just the world that you and I live in, right? Or just like <laughs> starting businesses and all that stuff. No, this is like the entrepreneurship generation, like the next generation coming up all want to start their own businesses, which is amazing and kind of do their own thing. But I think at the end of the day, when you do see the people successful in that are this, the young people with all their resources, like with the parents who are already in the tech industry who have the loud voices on social media. So their voices are overshadowing all these other voices who are trying to figure out this new economy, the new jobs out there. 
what's actually moving and what's attainable in the moment for them to make that income as they reach next level. So stepwise, I think what's happening is the people that got to skip a bunch of steps because of those outside influences is making this big gap of understanding for most people on how to get there each step of the way, like random jobs they can pick up and skills they can accumulate to feel more comfortable when they do that. So I think that's my take on that. So when you're, as you're speaking, like, I completely agree. It, like one thing like you kind of touched on is like, it's the kids with the resources that become successful. But I think a big resource is parents and like the mentality that parents have. Yeah. You know, like you come from an immigrant household and you're maybe like two or three degrees of separation behind like the innovator, the innovative economy. Yeah. And you're working and you're raising your kids to become accountants, to become financial analysts, doctors, lawyers, like these very prescriptive, like set jobs and like paths. And it's very scary to go up to your mom and dad and tell them that you want to do social media marketing. But if they actually knew the economics of, you know, e-commerce of digital marketing, of social media strategy, brand strategy. Like these kids are coming out with making six figures, $100,000, a year. 100%. It's insane. And then you see the people in that sector and like who are the social media marketers now? And it's just like one prototypical person. And in this day and age, 2021, we shouldn't have any industry where it's like, okay, the person that looks like this usually becomes that. Yeah. And you see these new tech industries where that's the case already. But part of it is because of like how people are educated, right? It's like, oh, you want to do social media? That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, you want to do e-commerce? You want to do drop shipping? Don't stop that. And it's the lifestyle that matters the most too now. So it's like those social media marketers have great lives and maybe they can work from home, take a couple days off, do their work on their phone at an airport on vacation. Like it's a different lifestyle where you are still kind of doing whatever you want. Same thing with software engineers. Like my immigrant dad who came here in the nineties had dinner with me and a friend who works as a software engineer at a company that just IPO clearly being successful. And out of the whole conversation, the only like, he was like, Oh, like he used to work at Google. And that was like the only thing in my dad's had that kind of click. And it's like, okay, so he must be successful because at some point he was working at Google and Google is a name that I can recognize. And I think if we step away from that and see all the different jobs and the smaller ecosystems and like our parents appreciate those little stepwise as well on those career paths that they don't really understand, you see a lot more young people going into those careers. Yeah. And it's not just those. I mean, like maybe these are like more extrovert focused roles, but like you mentioned, like software engineering, how about a step down, like system implementation, configuration, you can make 150 grand a year as a software implementer, like configuring Salesforce, and you can learn that in like three months. And like, it's not rocket science, yeah. but like, how do you convince yourself and the people in your ecosystem that this is the right path when no one's told you about it, when like you have no idea what it could be, but more importantly, you're afraid of failing and wasting your time. And I think that's the biggest problem with people between the age of 18 to 25 is they think their time is so freaking precious and they can't waste it. And they got to be the most successful person ever. It's like from the time you're 18 to time you're 25 years old, like it's nothing. It's literally just white space. Like it doesn't matter what you do because like what, so what, Oh, you get a great job making 70 grand a year when you're like 
21 years old or you make 40 grand, that's $30,000. It's not that much money. When you start talking into factors of like, okay, own your own business, like, you know, be an entrepreneur for yourself, be a contractor. Then you're talking in factors of hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially. And you only get there when you have like niche skill sets, which you can't get if you join PwC and you work alongside yeah. 100,000 other PwC employees that do the exact same thing you do. It's the crazy phenomenon too. It's not just like the first and low income kids. It's also like the elite kids who like those East Coast Ivies, they all go into finance, all end up on Wall Street with those jobs that have kind of limits to them and don't really bring in the creativity and the differences that all those students have. And you're like, oh, okay, like these institutions with single digit acceptance rates that are supposed to be the elite of the elite are all going to this one sector and doing these kind of boring dead end jobs. I don't really they need that many like honestly. And then you see them all kind of flop out or like the idea of tech too is new to them. And it, the fact that it's new to them in those kind of sectors means that there's this whole underlying population that is just inaccessible to those jobs. You know, it's mind blowing, right? It's like even the people in the know, right? The ones that are like, oh, private equity is the way to go. Yeah. Like, you know, let me introduce the concept of carry to you. And you're making $300,000 a year as a private equity associate at KKR. So, okay, so that sounds good to a lot of people on this call, right? But then you have like somebody, maybe they do like ETA thing, they do entrepreneurship through acquisition. They do banking for a year. Instead of going to private equity, you get the debt yourself. You buy like two or three e-commerce companies. You roll them up. You do the exact same thing that you have the skill set to do. But instead of like doing it for Kravis, Kohlberg, Roberts, and get maybe you get carry when you're like a VP 10 years from now, now you've made like a million and a half dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. And you're not doing anything different. It's I used to have this conversation a lot when I was working. It's like, Because I've worked with people who are about to become billionaires and people who are making ends meet. And it's like, what is the difference between the two? And when you have conversations with them, they're probably equally intelligent. And that's the crazy part. And then it's just like luck and connections. And people just, as someone who went from like a Berkeley to a Stanford, a big public school to this very small elite school, those connections really come through. And then just knowing the mentors and knowing how to navigate those spaces, which hopefully gets democratized very soon, just that navigation part of it. But it does matter a lot. There's like nothing special to the millionaires and billionaires. They're not like 10, 100,000 times better than you at all. There's a lot of different factors. There's nothing different about them yeah. in terms of how smart they are, how hardworking they are. Oftentimes they're less hardworking. <laughs> like, strategic laziness, yes. <laughs> yeah, strategic laziness. Exactly. But the difference is you hit on it. I mean, luck is definitely a component of it, but luck is a factor for, of risk for me. Yeah. So when you take risks, you have more likely to getting lucky. And then of course, there's an element of privilege to that where it's like you can take more risk when you have a safety net around you. But yeah, I think all like success in life and success can be measured in any number of different ways. But like, if you want to talk about like financial independence and success, it's a factor of risk. And I think people are afraid to take risk when they don't understand when they don't even have like an idea of like the potential, right? And they don't have the safety net yet. I think the risk is also safety nets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think when I first got into the venture industry too, people were like, oh, like this is a risky business. Like a lot of people fail, flame out. And it's like, as someone who comes from my background, 
I can always be a chemist. I have a chemistry degree. I can always go into data science. I worked in data science. I can go back into product. And just knowing that gave me the confidence to take those risks. A lot of times that like sustainability safety net for people in industry comes from nepotism, comes from like family in the industry. But it's also understanding that to have those backup plans is a privilege in itself. And then to try to use that strategically. Yeah. And I will like challenge your listeners when they think of that, right? Yeah. Is to frame your perspective in terms of like, what safety nets do you have? I think everyone to some extent has a safety net. Yeah. Like even when I was back at my lowest point, I still had my parents' futon that I could crawl back to. So like, that's all I had. I didn't have any money. They didn't have any money. They lived in Section 8 housing, right? But like that safety net was enough. Yeah. And I took the risks that like I could take. And I don't want to sound like, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Like that's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is like, be grateful that you're alive. And like, if you have the mental health to do that, like that's really where it all starts. Yeah. I feel like when I see like the 45 year old in industry, they seem a lot more calm and like grounded than like the 25 year old trying to make the name for themselves. And I think a lot of that comes from the self-awareness that they're just happy to be there, happy to be alive, happy to like kind of make their mark. Whereas like the 25 year old is like, thinks the whole world is out to get them, tries to like push really hard, but just having that calmness, like, no matter what, I'm doing something, but I want to try to do the most amazing things possible. So let's try to figure out who I am as a person should be the better mindset, but we'll see. I agree. I would love to go back to that anecdote of like the two people doing the same thing, one making six figures and the other one bringing home 1.5 million that year and what those differences are, how you came across that difference and then how that kind of motivates you to go further into this industry. So something I learned very quickly at my first job as RSM was like the concept of leverage. And I think it's a uniquely capitalist mentality where, you know, you have to make margin somewhere, right? And if you're in services, which is separate from products where you're selling a specific good, and the services is like a person doing something for someone else. And services, time is finite. Like you're constrained by the amount of time you can put in. So the only thing you can do is charge more. But then there's always a cap to how much you can charge because of competition, right? So how do you make money in services is leverage. You sell as much as you can of the service, and then you pay someone as little as you can to do the service. And, and that's basic economics, right? So if you think about it, like, who would you rather be? Like, would you rather be the guy selling the work or would you rather be the guy doing the work? You know, you'd rather be the guy at the top selling but like you know what does everyone tell you it takes experience it takes relationships it takes i don't know something you don't have because you're too young you're too dumb you're too experienced so you work for me and you learn under me and you grow that's kind of the mindset and i think it worked really well in the past because there wasn't the internet and there wasn't this like ubiquity of information right like relationships ran the world you know how much this guy's paying for that because you're friends with this person and, and it all kind of like works together. And then like, there's this opacity. It's like, okay, I can't see what the partners are doing. So it must be something I can't do. Whereas now, if you want to make deals, you can literally go to like auction.com and like look for deals, right? And you can, or you can Google like how to do a leverage buyout. 
I'm not saying you don't need experience. I'm not saying experience isn't valuable. It certainly is to the degree that you become comfortable in your skill set and knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. But the time it takes to get there is not 15 years. Yeah. Right. Like you can like, and again, I'm going back to the private equity analogy. You have the best and brightest, I use quotation marks, right? (laughs) But like you have like the most like positively signaled people in the world, like coming from Harvard, Stanford, going into private equity and they're being leveraged, right? Those guys are being leveraged by their partners, but that deal flow, it's not hidden, right? You can go look that up yourself. You can call, like you can go on the online, you can see who the Shopify owner is. You can call that person. You say, how much money you make? Okay, you're making $2 million EBITDA. Okay, that's $2 million in earnings. So you, I'll buy you for six. I'll buy you for $6 million. Okay, what do I need to do that? Well, debt is so cheap now, right? So you do this for a few years. You go, you take a $5.5 million loan from the SBA. You take $500,000. And that's the challenging part, right? It's finding that 500K of your own capital. But maybe you borrow that like 10, 15%. And now you own this $6 million company. You grow it for a year or two. And you sell it for 10. Or you sell it for seven. Or you sell it for eight. Or you buy another one and you roll them up together. I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying that it used to be impossible and now it's not. So like, that's really the point of like the analogy is to say like, there's no more gatekeepers here, right? Like go do your own thing. Work with young people who know things that you don't to build your own thing, right? Like you don't have to be leveraged for as long as you used to be. Yeah. How would you describe your motivations to kind of look for, like, I think a lot of people see people in powerful and high up positions and it's like, how did they get there? And like that idea, how did they get there? never really crosses people's minds and knowing that it's possible for them to with like kind of similar experiences. How did you get to a place where you had kind of that understanding? Like, okay, like when you see someone in those positions, you should ask, how did they get there and kind of follow the means that they use to accumulate wealth? That's an interesting question. I guess like, I don't really look at it as like there, quote unquote. Like, I don't know if I like, it's not that I disrespect them, but like, I think it's just a function of time, time and diligence, and hopefully being a good person, right? I think if I see somebody that's done something that I respect and admire, I think that's different than like somebody who just has accumulated wealth, but like, it doesn't matter how they, I don't care how they've done it. Like if I don't want to be you in 20 years, like then that's fine. Like you, there's 7 billion people in this world. Like, you know, there's enough space for you and I to co- coexist without really interacting. But like if I see somebody that like has, is something or someone that I would like to be or emulate, like, I guess the first thing is I never try to, think that I could ever be that person because you can't ever be somebody else. You can only be yourself. So it's like, how do I become the best version of my, like how can this person who's been successful help me become the best version of myself? And I think that comes with like, again, like knowing yourself and what you want. And like the biggest trap is to try to become somebody else as opposed to trying to become the best version of yourself. I think like you're the main character of your story. Like that's the mentality, right? Like yeah. the TikTok time, you're the main character. But I think yeah. especially in these like high power like positions, a lot of people kind of forget that you're the main character. Like you're trying to promote yourself, figure out your next moves, what you like your brand is and your personality and how you fit into this ecosystem, not like tying yourself. Like there's 
articles that are coming out about corporate identity, occupational identity, which you brought up. And like before, like 10 years ago, people really tied their own brand to their employer's brand. Like, oh, I work at McKinsey or I am a nurse at Kaiser. And now as people like independent work gets bigger, side hustles, the ability to navigate through different sectors and career paths and not really stay to one true occupation. It's more about you and like how you're the main character, you're the main branding and kind of getting to that place. Did you ever have a struggle with that? Like detaching yourself to your employer or your boss's brand? Or was it just like, were you always this way? Because you feel like you've always been this way, but a lot of people haven't. So I'm curious. Well, I think, so let me frame it this way. Like, again, like I don't think there's anything wrong with someone who like gets a lot of personal satisfaction and self-esteem from being associated with something larger than themselves. I think it's inherently human to like, feel connection to community. So maybe I don't feel like that way for an employer, but like I'm damn proud I got into MIT. And like, I definitely have this affinity because for me, it represents for somebody that like really is proud of where they work, which is like the hard work that they had to do to get into it. And that's important and that's special. So if that's how you feel, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with that. As long as you're comfortable in your station in life. Like if you're happy, like, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking about how to build wealth on this call, but I'm not actually like obsessed with it. I don't like want to be a billionaire. You know, I want a summer house and I want my kids to go to good schools and to be able to take vacation and to have like a great work-life balance. Yeah. That comes with like making a certain amount of money. That's not like, I just don't want to make money for money's sake. If you want, and I mean like deeply want, not like, oh, this will be nice to have. Like if you just want, you know, one house or like a certain lifestyle and you can get that through your employer, then you've actually found something beautiful. Yeah. And that's a symbiotic relationship with a company where they're treating you the way you want to be treated and you're you're adding value to them. And that's, I think it's just so amazing, right? Like, man, like my cousin, like I just like, he just wants to be an auto mechanic. And I just want that so bad for him because he just wants to fix cars all day and like have oil in his hands and sweat and like, you know, then go home and chill with with his wife and his two-year-old. And I'm like, dude, you're the man. Like that is so freaking cool because you found like happiness and peace in life. So I guess, I don't know if, I think your original question was like, how do you separate from that? Or did I struggle with that? I think if you're unhappy in a situation, then that's a question we can address. But if there's no drive to do that, there's no drive to like be the main character in your own story. Yeah, that's fair. That's a very good take on it. I think like specifically in women's circles too, like a big drive is like, make sure you're the main character because a lot of women fall into the trap that they're supporting people their whole life and never really thinking of themselves. But knowing that, yeah, it's not a bad idea to kind of tie yourself to something bigger and then find purpose through that as well. It's hard to kind of be the main character all the time. It is. And I think there are times to put yourself out of your comfort zone and there's times not to. And I think, I mean, on like the whole topic of gender, first off, I think it really sucks that when women have are gendered or trained to be like the home giver and yeah. men aren't. The caretaker. Caretaker, yeah. Thinking about everyone else. Yeah, you just keep thinking about everyone else. Whereas I think an ideal situation would be like a 50-50 split. Like I don't have this weight of the world on my shoulders of like, oh, family, other people, right? And I'm thinking specifically, you know, of my girlfriend who is like incredibly intelligent, like 
really passionate about like marine policy and like wants to work in DC. And like, I'm fully supportive of that, but she always has in the back of her head, like family. It's like an active muscle that she has to exercise that puts her out of her comfort zone, you know? And it's like that. I think everyone has to make the individual choice of like, you know, it's just exhausting to have to do that. Right. But at a certain point, I think just like the onus, like the things that women think about that men just don't think about. And sometimes they just like magically happen to them, like balancing it all. And usually there's a woman in the background balancing it for them. For sure. Yeah. That's like. (laughs) Or man. Or man. Or man. Yes. Yes. That's like the, I think the biggest issue with that part, like main character, side character is like, when can those side characters feel like main characters? But when it comes to employer brand, I don't think that's a correct metaphor, which I'm now realizing (laughs) it's tough with the work thing because like yes there is leverage but you know i don't know if this is true or not but like you know you get the sense that like if you're in a situation where it's some symbiotic relationship and like you treat your employers well your employees well and you're happy where you're there then like that's fine and just similarly like if you are really passionate about like raising a family and being a stay-at-home mom or dad. Pitch that, by the way, you know, because I might love to chill too. Like, it's not chilling, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just saying like, for me, it's literally just about like happiness and finding like where you're most comfortable. And like, yes, I think you have to go outside of your comfort zone to find that. But at a certain point, you know, if you feel like you were meant to be like, you know, a nine to five worker that's what you're meant to be if you're meant to be a stay-at-home mom or dad that's what you're meant to be like there's nothing wrong with that and i think the challenge is like people not having the conversation with themselves yeah to figure out what they actually want and instead of listening to like everything around them to that like tries to say like oh you should be this you should be that you know i think women also have that muscle where everyone's trying to like mentor them maybe everyone like every young person has this muscle everyone's trying to mentor you everyone's going to want to be your mentor it's like in your head actually classifying that advice into useful or should never listen to ever Yes. And like, yeah, you have to get really good at the should never. (laughs) And then smiling and nodding your head when these impressive, important people are telling you what to do and then never doing what they said to do. Ever. Right. Yeah. But that itself is, I'm so happy you said that because like, it's so hard when you don't know anything, (laughs) you know, when like, and how can you know anything if like all you've ever done is like go to school and you know what your parents teach you and you know what you learn at school, which is very little you know and then you have all these like do you remember how important you thought a vp was when you like first like met like a vp i was never into business at all i thought how important i thought like a phd was in science and then when i started hanging out with phds and all they did was get drunk and play (laughs) softball i was like oh okay this is different right but isn't saying it's so wild like you're like oh my god you're like a phd oh you're a vp yeah i have those in everything you say yeah yep Okay. And then if you get the wrong person who gives you the wrong advice, who's like, well, you know, like you're going to be 28 and then your eggs are going to die. Are you sure? Like you should maybe just have a kid. Like if you get the wrong person, you're screwed, you know? So like, I don't know. Like, yeah. how did you think? I'm so interested to hear how you, what you just said about like having the muscle to know, to, to filter good advice from bad advice. Like where did that come from for you? 
Honestly, I think my parents, which I probably shouldn't post this, I think they used to have really well-meaning advice, but them just not knowing like how the United States worked. A lot of it would like cause me early on to hit these dead ends. And I think when you see like impressive people now trying to give me advice, you have to understand they don't know who you are. After one conversation, no one is going to know who you are as a human. And they're going to try to classify and stereotype you and prototype you into people that they know and things that they've seen which is exactly what my parents are like, who they know, who they've seen succeed. And success will not look the same in five years as it is now. It's not going to look the same in 15 years. And then success to you is going to look very different than success to anyone else. Like having that family might be more important to you than the person giving you advice or having that career and really succeeding might be more important to you than that person giving you advice. Like you brought up the 28 year old, your eggs are dying. Like a lot of my friends are going through that now and it's, okay, like who's giving that advice? Like, are we actually thinking through it? And then that kind of stuff. Like I just went to my friend's kid's fifth birthday party and every single person there had a kid. And then I go to my other friend's birthday party and no one there is close to getting married or getting like, it's each their own. And then you have to think critically, like what camp do you kind of want to be in? And like, what's the best life plan for you? Not like what your parents did, not what your mentors done, just you. And then, yeah, thinking, really critically about yourself first and then going into these mentors and listening to everything they're about to say. Yeah. And you know what? Like, I think like it's important for like for me to caveat everything that I've said here today. Right. Because, and I think this is amazing why you're doing this podcast. I hope people listen, they listen to yeah. all of them. Right. And, and you get so many different perspectives because, you know, I'm thinking about the advice that I give people that I mentor and I, can sometimes like really tell when my advice is like really constrained where it's like, I don't have an an ability to advise people who want something different than like fundamentally like I want. And I've been lucky enough, I think to like have people who want to be mentored by me who like want similar things as me, but when it rubs up against somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I'm really good about saying, you know, I'm actually not a good person to mentor you on this because we have different, things. And I don't actually, my worldview isn't good enough to get you there. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I have a bad day and I give bad advice and I can remember those times where I leave the call and I'm like, yeah, I think I just talked out of my ass for like 20 minutes. Like, I don't think I actually really helped this person, you know? And yeah, it's like self-awareness. I mean, I think by and large it works out, but like the self-awareness on the listener as well as the mentor is like I don't know if I had, should say shit on this podcast. There's so much bullshit in this world. Like me neither. I don't know. <laughs> you have to get better at reading it. Like a lot of the news you're reading is bullshit. A lot of the people speaking are bullshit. Like you have to know what is good and what's not. And the faster you can understand that, the better your life's gonna be, most likely. Seeing people fail and realizing that they're human is one of the, like the most important things, I think. Find those people that you find truly impressive, actually sit down and talk to them and then ask them those vulnerable questions, hear how they failed too. And then you're going to realize that everyone's very the same, very similar. So do you have any last thoughts as we try to wrap up this podcast? It's been really great. And your journey from farmer, bartender, finance student into ed tech, VC, MIT, Sloan, MBA has been very impressive to say the least. But yeah, just anything that we've left off, last words, things you want to tell everyone else. Yeah, I guess first off, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to either one of us. I think if anything resonated, 
because some of it, like, I mean, that's really why I think we do this. It's like, even if one person like really feels strong and that they can benefit from a conversation or like they feel lost, like that's what we want is to make that change. And even if it's within like, like just that one person to help, I think that's so, so gratifying for us. That's the main piece of advice. And two, I think like, I talk a lot about like being happy and finding purpose. And I think I was like fortunate enough to like not struggle with like mental health, like disease, right? But like all this advice that you give that or I give, like I do so understanding that like sometimes it's not physically possible to do that. Yeah. And it's like there are so many like other issues like and disabilities that like can prevent you from doing things. So like, if you're listening, you're like, you know, fuck this kid. Like, yeah, he's not like, <laughs> I don't know if you had to take that out, but like, you know, it's like, okay, like this, pick yourself up with your bootstraps. Like, oh, like yeah, lucky yeah. for you, you can do this because you know, like whatever, like you're not suffering from depression. It's like, you're right. I wasn't, I was depressed. I was not suffering from depression. Yeah. That's the case. Like, you know, like I'm not the resource and the resource is like mental health professionals. Yeah. And if you can find the strength to do that, like everyone is rooting for you. So I guess that would be the only thing to say is like, again, contextualize everything. And, you know, we're all literally in this together trying to figure it out. Like no one actually has it figured out. So, you know, exactly. (laughs) Which is a big part of this podcast. No one knows what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for that constraint at the end. It was really nice talking to you. This was really fun. Yeah. I loved it. Thank you for giving me this platform. Of course.